0: And next lecture, so we've got two lectures on this, we're looking at the question of divorce and remarriage. Um, And we know pastory, this is a huge issue. If you think even of our own house, about half the house, this directly affects your own families. Um, In the parishes, likewise, this is a huge issue. Um, We're going to look at what the Lord says. We're going to look at what church documents say. And then I've allowed in two lectures of this with the reading pages, there should be plenty of time for you to interrupt me with questions. You know, in the parish setting, how does that work? Um, I've been a pastor 14 years, that's not a thousand years, but I I have dealt with these scenarios many times myself. Um, And happy for you to throw in your own anecdotes too. So, divorce and remarriage. Um, what do we have to say here? Actually, let's start. I need two pages today, so we're going to use the blackboard. I know, isn't this exciting? Okay, we're going to use the green board then. Okay, so Bob and Sue get married um, in church. So they have a Catholic wedding. Um, That means it's for life. Now, Bob, it turns out, is drunk, is violent. Sue therefore leaves him with good reason. Sue meets John um, and they have a government wedding, not a church wedding. Yeah, I was trying to avoid the word civil, but yeah, okay. Let's use the word civil then.
1: understand I just want to make sure that you knew
0: we said civil okay do you say
1: government wedding?
0: no we'd say civil actually that's <laughs> <laughs> true civil marriage I don't think
1: we would say wedding but
2: anyway But
0: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah is that the only way it can be done is justice of the peace is that Right, so I was trying to avoid the... Religious Captain. Okay. You but I was... I was getting best of you, I suppose, three I got here and I... I pronounced you, My cousin did that. Okay. Anyway, indeed. Sue, what state is Sue then in as a Catholic? Um Well, going to note she's not allowed Holy Communion. She's not allowed to go to confession. Key point I want to make to you though, is that that is temporary. It is until her situation is resolved. So the church doesn't say this to her, and this is you for life. No, the church says this is, as long as your situation is unresolved, this is your situation in the church. It's not supposed to be a permanent state. So we'll note the catechism uses the phrase as long as the situation persists. Then, um, so we might imagine that Sue, like many in the church, has a period of time when she lapses, is away. 10 years, she's away from the church. She then comes back to the church. She's trying to figure out What she can do, um, one of the things to look at is an annulment or, more strictly speaking, a declaration of nullity. You've not done this in canon law yet, some of you. You Neximists, okay. Okay, this is by the church, not by the state. Uh, The word annulment implies, kind of linguistically inaccurately, that the church does something that changes the marriage. Whereas the phrase declaration of nullity is more precise, that indicates. That the church is declaring that all along the marriage was null. Do you see that distinction? You've heard that distinction before? Maybe. So it's the same thing. So it's the it, exactly. Linguistically, the connotation is different. Um, so you will not hear, generally speaking, canon lawyers referring to annulments. You'll hear them referring to declarations of nullity. But what's kind of spoken about in the church in common speech um, annulments because it's one word not three. Um, That's the situation we're mapping out. So our primary kind of questions today are going to revolve around this couple here and particularly we're envisaging Sue as being a Catholic. So, we're all kind of clear what we're talking about? Is he baptized? Okay, so you know that the relevance of that question. If he's baptized, this is therefore a sacramental union and cannot be dissolved. If it's only a natural union because he's not baptized, then not a sacrament is capable of by, by the either Pauline or Petrine privilege of being dissolved. But let's put that question aside for later, um, as in the next lecture. This lecture, first, think about the assumption that this is a valid marriage. Um, What's Sue's position, whether or not John is a Catholic? Okay, let's think about this on one level, at the order of nature. What is going on here? Marriage is natural. Um, You know, even if you're not a Catholic, not a Christian, marriage is a true, natural reality. Remarriage going into a second union when your spouse is still alive therefore violates your nature, your own nature. And we're gonna note here it thwarts your path to beatitude. This is a point I'm gonna try and come back to repeatedly today and our next lecture. There's a way many, in a sense, good priests try to say words to the effect of, I'm sorry these terrible church, awkward church laws are imposing this on you. We've got to be faithful to them, um, but not actually acknowledging that, that for Sue herself, being faithful to what is the truth, what is true to her own nature, is actually her path to beatitude. Not an easy path, but the path. the order of nature. Now what does the Lord say? You you go to many good evangelical churches, good charismatic churches, and they'll say, do we have a word from the Lord on this? We do have a word from the Lord on this. In fact, despite this being one of the most controverted uh, pastoral scenarios, it's something that is most clear in the Gospels. So we do have a word from the Lord. St. Paul says, not I, but the Lord. And then he goes on to say, no divorce, and remarriage. In the Gospels records... Whoever divorces and marries another commits adultery. Possibly the most blunt, aggressive words of our Lord in the Gospel. And we need to have fidelity to his word. Pastorally, what's going on here? Well, remarriage, pastorally, one of the things that's so tough about this is this is an ongoing status. It's not an isolated act. sometimes hear it said well if someone robbed a million dollars from the bank and then confessed it they can be forgiven and absolved remarriage isn't like that if you are going to continue living with this second person it's an ongoing status so the absolution question the resolution of your situation requires a change in your situation So what is, pastorally speaking, the solution? Well, there is three options. One, the most obvious, separation. So Sue and John are not together in the eyes of the Lord, therefore they shouldn't be together, they should separate. And Sue may have been with John for ten years, after having been away from Bob for... 14 years, when she reevaluates her situation, the most obvious thing is separation. If she's not going to separate, then there's the possibility of her and John living as brother and sister, if in the same house. Will note what that means in more detail. Um, but to not live as husband and life, to live as brother and sister, if there's some other reason why they need to stay together. Or transitionally. No Holy Communion, no confession until the situation is resolved. And the priest needs to use the phrase of Pope Francis that is his phrase but it's not a new concept pastoral accompaniment he has to be with them but there needs to be the call to the gospel which is a call to conversion to change Not an isolated act. Status. Oh, sorry. Status, yes. And we have two lectures to look at this. I'm broadly speaking, thinking this first lecture will look at everything before um, the recent Synod and Amoris Laetitiae, and then I'm going to indicate, fundamentally, I don't think Amoris Laetitiae and the Synod have changed anything, though pastorally speaking it has created a lot of confusion because of various people running around saying things. So that's our trajectory for the next two lectures. It's kind of mapping out in detail what this says. Okay, so let's turn to my bundle of lecture notes and start on page one. And on this page I am trying to simply start scripturally, start with the highest authority on these questions Just noting that remarriage, remarriage in the sense of what Sue and John's status is, um, is forbidden by Christ. So quoting from the catechism, first of all, Michael, would you read?
2: The Lord Jesus insisted on the original intention of the Creator who will that marriage be indissoluble. He abrogates the accommodations that had slipped into the old law, between the baptized, a ratified and consummated marriage cannot be dissolved by any human power or for any reason other than death.
0: So death does end a marriage. That, um, as Jesus says, we will not be married in heaven, except in the sense of the messianic banquet married to God. Um, which makes us a little different, well, it does make us different from the Greek Orthodox who have a rather curious thing where even widows, they kind of put in the similar status to those who are in a second marriage after divorce. Um, that's not how we view it. Directly from the Gospels, though. Um, first of all, yeah, directly from the Gospels. Um, Daniel, could you read the first quote? Whoever divorces... Tyler, could you read the next one? It was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let
2: him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of a makes her an adulteress, and whoever
1: marries a divorced woman commits adultery.
0: And then David. So if she separates from her husband, her options there are be single or go back to her husband. Um, have you been through the scripture passage, this uh, word on ch- except on the grounds of unchastity, this word pornea in Greek? Have you? We covered that in one of the first lectures here. Mm. Yeah. Could have done? I don't recall. We'd have done it? No, I don't recall. Let me repeat it anyway. Um, So, in the Greek, um, so if you think in our Western tradition, most of our scripture texts have come to us via the Vulgate. So, the Vulgate then had translated the Greek into Latin. Most of our Western translations come via the Vulgate. And so many translations will say, except on the grounds of adultery, except on the grounds of immorality, except on the grounds of unchastity. In Greek, the word is porneia. If the phrase had meant except on the grounds of adultery, the word would be mochaia. That isn't what the Greek says. Um, What is meant by this word porneia? It's some kind of unchastity, but what? So I say the above Greek word is variously translated and variously interpreted. And I say there are two standard but differing Catholic interpretations of the text. The first, the Porneia clause refers to certain incestuous Gentile unions that the Jews considered unchaste or to poly- polygamous unions. Such unions were thus never real marriages. One was obliged to leave them and would then, be free to marry someone else. So there were marriages that the Gentiles had that when uh, around the time of our Lord, you know, the Jews were doing a lot of proselytism, making many converts from the Gentiles. Some of these people in a Gentile marriage would become Jewish, but the closeness of relationship with cousins and whatever that they had, the Jews would have said that isn't a valid marriage and they'd have had to separate. And they would then have been free to marry someone else. That, in terms of scriptural criticism, strikes me as the most convincing explanation of the text, in terms of the the Greek word in context. Um, The second interpretation is what If you follow the trajectory and translations that have come via the Vulgate, and thus most of our Western tradition, say it refers to an exception, the exception refers to grounds for separation, but not to a ground for remarriage. So your spouse commits adultery, that is a reason for you to leave your spouse, but that doesn't mean they're not still your spouse, and it doesn't mean you're free to marry someone else. So except on the grounds of unchastity, meaning you can divorce your wife, and that doesn't make you an adulteress. But it doesn't mean you're free to marry someone else. That's kind of been the majority interpretation in the West. We understand what those two interpretations imply? Okay, over the page. So I've got a page here about separation. Um, So I've given an example here where Sue would have clear grounds to separate from Bob. Let's imagine they've got two children. He's drunk, he's violent. For the good of the children, for her own good, she should leave him. She should separate. Top of the page two. Separation. A Catholic couple may separate and may even legally divorce in civil law, though in the eyes of God and his church they remain married. So note, except in the case of adultery, any separation is temporary in the sense that it may only be morally maintained as long as the grounds for the separation remain, as according to canon law. And as with other things, the grounds for that might last your whole life, but it's the grounds have to be there for there to be a warrant for being separated. This is your spouse. You did say before God, till death do us part. There need to be grounds for you to not be together. What does the catechism say here? Christopher, can you read the first quote from the catechism? which is The catechism, which is in turn is quoting Canon Law. Daniel, the next one.
2: It can happen that one of the spouses is the innocent victim of a divorce decreed by civil law. This spouse, therefore, is not contravening the moral law. There is a considerable difference between a spouse who has sincerely tried to be faithful to the sacrament of marriage and is unjustly abandoned, and one who, through his own grave fault, destroys a canonically valid marriage.
0: In short, there are grounds for separation, so we need to be clear about that. Um, You you'll hear your kind of uber faithful Catholic um, saying, well, you said the vows, you, you have to stay together. That isn't what the church says, not always. The default position though, so if you look at the canon law I've got there, so Canon 1151 says, spouses have the obligation and the right to maintain their common conjugal life, unless a lawful reason excuses them. If we scan down to Canon 115.3.1, uh, Tyler, could you read that one for us? So
3: we're
0: a for the spouse? Uh, a spouse who occasions. A decree by the local ordinary, Uh, in our pastoral context, that's never done. One can imagine much smaller dioceses, smaller, tightly knit Catholic communities, where there would be a process by which one would go to the ordinary. For us, that isn't the case. Therefore, the second half of that sentence holds his or her own authority. Do you know how broad ranging the grounds for separation are there? So it does start with danger of soul or body to you or your ch- children, but also unduly difficult common life. Going, okay, talking through this with one parishioner uh, and the person acknowledging, "Yeah, yeah, my spouse would say "I'm unduly difficult." Not saying that happily, but that is a the ground there. Um, And so among the scenarios you'll have to deal with in the parish is when there are two, you've got a Catholic couple and one of them is saying, I want us to separate and the other is kind of dragging the two of them to the priest saying, no, we made a vow, you've got to stay with me. Um, So sometimes you need to talk through with them. Actually, there are grounds here and you can't be saying, you're you're being a bad Catholic if you're not going to stay with me if you're being somehow unduly difficult or a grave danger to soul or body. Grave danger to body is probably pretty obvious. Grave danger to soul. Examples, anyone? If he's a okay, other examples?
2: What what about a drug addict?
0: Yeah. Yeah, or somehow morally dissolute in a way that's going to be a terrible danger to the children. And he might be a drug addict who repeatedly says, yeah, I'm going to stop doing this. Yeah, I am going to stop doing this. But at a certain time you realize he's not going to stop doing this. For the sake of the children, we need to separate.
2: Yeah,
0: really, like, kind of yeah there'd be many, yeah, you know, many examples you could think. I'm going to presume we're going to go through this more in canon law, but our basic category here: there are grounds for separation. Any comment before we move on? So,
2: if, what if one of the spouses apostatizes? Hmm. Because that, I mean, their example would be a grave danger to the souls of the children.
0: I don't think a spouse being non-Catholic is a grave danger to the soul of the child.
2: They become militant media. I mean, there's like, there's a spectrum of how far they go. Yeah. I mean, the studies of like, oh, the father doesn't go to church, and what that does for the children.
0: And yet the church does also allow you to marry a non-Catholic spouse. Yes. So... There'd have to be a particular packaging for that, I think, to fulfill that condition. Um, Because it's a very common scenario, that when you marry your spouse and your spouse is young, they are a bit like this morning's sermon, on fire with the Lord, and somehow they lose that. But you are married, um, for better or for worse. Other thoughts in this section? Yeah. Is it normal to get a decree? Just, I a mean, so that, that, right? so that, Sorry, I did say that. Um, in, in our context, in the States, it's not normal to get a decree. I think there are super Catholic countries where you've got a small diocese, close knit community, where the process would be going to the local ordinary. Any of your American dioceses, that's just not a relevant part of the canon. So therefore the second half of that sentence um, with his or her own authority. um, You might seek the advice of your pastor. um, And I think I would say my experience is that's a helpful thing to do as a pastor for the two of them to separate on relatively amicable terms rather than one of them having a burning anger and saying to the other you're a bad Catholic because you're leaving me. Even though their life, they're the cause of it being unduly difficult. And at the risk of stating the obvious, these are never happy scenarios. There's a problem, Um, separation is making the problem less bad, but the separation is a problem too.
1: there, uh, OK, so maybe you're going to go into this, but so a separation happens. Is there a general idea in the mind of those Catholics or those people that, OK, next step is seek annulment, or next step is, well, I'm just going to find another person to be with? Or will they, will they be able to stay? living
0: by themselves in that separation? What should be in their mind? So Sue leaves Bob because Bob is a danger to whatever or unduly difficult. Sue, if she is married to Bob, has grounds to separate. She should therefore not be thinking, I'm leaving Bob and I'm going to be looking for someone else to spend my life with. I can't picture spending my life alone. She's not free to look for someone else. So she needs, and we need to encourage her, she's making that separation, to not think of herself as free to find someone else. Unless she gets an annulment. At that stage, she would be free to be with someone else. But until then... She shouldn't be looking and shouldn't be thinking of herself as free to look for someone else. The annulment process can't start unless there is a civil divorce in place. That's kind of part of the way the legal process in the church works, that you've kind of in civil law committed yourselves to this permanence of not being together, therefore why, has that arisen? Is it because there was something wrong at the very beginning, therefore the church will now, if you approach the and Tribunal and so forth, examine the situation?
1: So, but what is, uh, I get that's what they should be thinking. Yeah. But,
0: but they're not thinking my that. My
1: guess is that most people don't think, oh, I'm being separated and it's for a time and I'm going to remain mm-hmm. single. Mm-hmm. But, I have this bond of marriage that still exists. Yeah. My guess is that most people think, well, now I just need to go through the process to show that this marriage didn't exist uh, so that I can move on with my life. That's my guess. But I yeah,
0: no, I, think that's a, I think that's a fair statement, that most people are not viewing this the way the church does, unless they're very catechized. I think it's worth also pointing out the sad reality um, that you can, you know, Bob and Sue can both be super devout Catholics at the beginning, both be focused missionaries together, um, and still things don't work out. So it's not only the case where actually they weren't that committed in the faith to begin with. Um, The scenario I want us to think next about though is, Sue has left Bob and Sue has entered into a relationship with John. Um, Where does that leave her now? And I'd say past three, the most common scenario She leaves, this is all very unpleasant. She's away from the church for a number of years. During that time she's away from the church, she gets a civil marriage. At some stage, she comes back to the church, but then she's trying to figure out, well, what is my situation in the church? So she is divorced and remarried. What is her status? So page three, I've called Living as Divorced and Remarried Catholics. And in bigger font at the top, in italics, I just point out a simple sociological, theological point here that is a very important baseline for you catechetically to be articulating. Marriage is a public, not a private reality. Divorce and remarriage thus affects the remarriage and their relationship with the community of the church and the sacraments of the church. If marriage was just a private thing and it was just you, you wouldn't have marriage to begin with. You would just go live together. Um, You go to the justice of the peace, you go to the priest because actually marriage affects everyone. It affects the community and therefore it affects your relationship with the community. Um, And even the couple who just go and live together thinking it doesn't affect the rest of the community, our lives impact everybody else. Um, And a couple just living together, that has different ripples of effect on, on the community and a society when the default position has become just living together, the instability of that affects all of the community. So the, the person who's saying to you, well, what business is it of the church to be talking to me about this? Marriage is a public affair. Marriage affects the community. That's why you went to the priest to begin with. So what is the status of a divorced and remarried Catholic? Well, here I've got a series of quotes. First, quoting the Catechism, they objectively contravene God's law in an ongoing status. That means they can't receive communion. Uh, Daniel, could you read that quote for us?
2: Their state and condition of life objectively contradict that union of love between Christ and the church which is signified and affected by the Eucharist. If these people were admitted to the Eucharist, the faithful would be led into error and confusion regarding the Church's teaching about the indissolubility of marriage.
0: Okay, so there are two parts to the argument John Paul II gives there. There's one about an imagery of marriage, where what is receiving communion is a participation in the marriage banquet of heaven which is the marriage banquet of the Mass. And if you are divorced and remarried, that is contradicting something about the Eucharist. The second part of the argument is, it would lead others into error and confusion because they'd think, well, it must be okay then. The catechism, next bullet point, they cannot exercise certain ecclesial responsibilities. And I know that this isn't specified further by the catechism. And I asked the question there, would being a choirmaster or an organist or chairperson of the parish pastoral council be excluded roles? So we're considering a role where someone is in the parish community, a model to others. Others are looking to this person is there something in their life so fundamental in its status that it's sending a counter signal to the congregation? Now I've been in parishes where the organist was an unknown person. Up in a choir loft, unseen, almost all the parishioners don't even know their name, they just hear the music. That's very different from other parishes you go to where the organist is one of the most public roles in the community so what I'm trying to articulate there is the church doesn't list a line of positions that are excluded because I think that's going to vary in every community so it's, it's down to the pastor to make that call which is a difficult call but you've got to think how is this impacting the rest of the community yeah
1: can I give a A guy who's already married, and uh, the pastor said, You know, if you guys remain separate, and the guy was going through a divorce, but it had not gone through yet. And the pastor said, If you remain separate, if you live with your mother, your family, whatever, um, then you can keep your job, um, but you can't get married civilly, you can't do anything until everything is all. worked out. And then at some point, I guess, she secretly went through with a civil marriage with the guy, and eventually he found out about it because of the other teachers, and then he said, well, by your actions, we need to fire you. Um, so, uh, So, yeah. So this is a second grade teacher who then is in the situation, I mean, and it adds even layers with the getting pregnant
0: and all that, but. um. But the first description of what was suggested, if they had not been living together, there'd be a way of getting pregnant where everybody knows kind of a mistake happened here. And somehow that is the message being sent. Mistakes happen, there is mercy, is very different from this happened and we're embedded in this and we think this is okay and normal. Or that's the way it looks from the outside. Um, how a pastor's gonna deal with that is gonna be, always be difficult. Um, the legal situation. This is where you realize your um, contract for your Catholic teacher either is or isn't a good contract. Does it have something in there about their lifestyle and their public status or not? Uh, and I yeah, I can remember in my diocese back home, there being a stage where um, the, the lawyer of the diocese said at a council of priests meeting to the bishop, um, you can't fire that teacher because their contract doesn't give you um, grounds to do that, and one of the priests said to the diocesan lawyer, "You mean that you gave us a contract that didn't work as a Catholic contract? Don't presume that the contracts are already adequate. Um, your diocese, I think, has addressed many of these things for a while, but."
1: Yeah, I. My understanding.
0: Okay, but if you get um, some youth worker, some new post in your parish that you're all excited to employ, getting guidance from the diocese for those contracts, um, get them right. Um, But this is where it, it does come down to the pastor has got to make that judgment call. How is this gonna impact the rest of the community? Next bullet point. The person who is divorced and remarried cannot receive absolution in the sacrament of penance. Now, why not? I say, because they haven't repented of their sin against marriage, because they're remaining in that state. I say, unless he or she is committed to living in complete continence. So, the next page will see what that means. But, so you have many situations in confession someone comes to you and they confess something, a state of life situation, at that stage they have to have repented and intend to change. They don't yet have to have mapped out how they're going to change in terms of receiving absolution. there has gotta be their intention and obviously it's better, more meaningful, if they've got some vision of how they're going to play that out. But to have figured out how you're gonna start that conversation, you know, how is Sue gonna start that conversation with John? To say to John, I know we've been together 10 years, but now I need us to change whatever. She doesn't have to have mapped out where she's gonna have that conversation, how she's gonna start it, what they're like, but she's gotta have intended to, to start that. For you to give her absolution and you might well envisage at the start of that there being a few occasions where she's going to have intended but then falls in the implementation that's different from someone who is not intending to change their situation Is just saying well you know i'm married to john now i can't you know, it wouldn't be fair to John to change things. Wouldn't be fair to John, nothing in this scenario is kind of fair to anybody. It's trying to, what's the least bad scenario here? Um, what is the church's role to them? What's the priest's, your role to them? What does it involve? Well, it involves, I say, the call to repentance. We cannot view their situation as acceptably permanent. Thus, their bar from Holy Communion is referred to as being, to quote the Catechism, as long as this situation persists, rather than being referred to as permanent. I've said that already, but I think it's a really important part of our pastoral vision. No Holy Communion, um, no confession, as long as the situation persists. And we're wanting the situation not to persist. And we're wanting to engage with them in such a way that it won't persist. And you as a pastor will have to realize there are probably a whole string of different conversations with different degrees of readiness of that person. But in your mind, it's not permanent. You're wanting to get somewhere else. Even if maybe A first of those initial conversations is blunt, is difficult, is just focusing on the awkward things. Um, You've got to be clear you're aiming somewhere else. And as soon as they're ready to hear it, you've got to at least be, be pointing where they're aiming, even if they're not yet ready to aim there. Second bullet point, manifesting an attentive solicitude so that they do not consider themselves separated from the church in whose life they can and must participate as baptized persons. We'll come back to a church document, unpacking that a bit more later, but attentive solicitude, you do want them to be participating in the life of the church. You don't want to phrase this to them in a way that their initial thing is, okay, I'm just up and leaving the church. And to have a strong line, but also not turn them away, is very difficult to get those two things together. That page, there's a lot on that page. Are we comments further? Yeah. Are you going to talk more about the absolution?
3: Or is C letter pages, does that C letter pages regard
0: to? Continence is what. What are, you, what are you thinking about absolution? So, the only
3: absolution of the sin that pertains to their living together?
0: Ah, uh, okay, that's a different. Murder or other grave matter? I mean, it's a blanket? That's a different question about what the nature of confession is. I don't know at what stage that's going to be covered in your courses. or whatever, But, so to be clear, when we go to confession, we have to have complete. Uh, uh, If your contrition is not complete, it is not contrition. To say, I'm sorry I stole your money, but I'm not sorry that I took your car, well, I'm not really sorry. That sorrow has to be complete if it's real. But if a person is ignorant of the nuances of the church teachings on divorce and marriage... If they don't know it's a sin and they haven't articulated it to you, you have no reason to be asking them a thousand questions about things they haven't asked, haven't referred to. So you presume they're, um, What's? you presume they've come in good faith, you presume um, therefore the, the confession is adequate unless, and you give them absolution. And if they are in good faith, and they didn't realize something they should have confessed that they should have, there's some degree of things being put right. If they have hidden from you something that they should have said, then the whole sacrament is null and void. There isn't a real absolution there if they've hidden it from you. Another scenario though, for you as the priest, the church does say, the baden for confessors, that you have a duty to ask prudent questions. So if they've said something that pretty clearly implies there's a whole big sin here they haven't actually referred to, so they refer to their partner rather than their spouse, you have a duty to ask questions to kind of gently what do you mean by the word partner rather than spouse? sorry okay yes
3: yeah my initial question was was that but to kind of sidestep that issue altogether, focus on like meeting with them and counselling them outside the the sacrament and then get them to a point where they can realise
0: yes that's exactly what I've done when I've been in the so met the couple or met frequently only Sue multiple times and at a certain stage say It sounds to me like you're now ready for absolution. Um, Then help her in a kind of generalized way. Do you remember how you used to go to confession? Or here's a good examination of conscience. These are the things in your life that's to articulate. Uh, While we're on this point, what does Sue need to confess in her relationship with John? This is a big question pastorally. Because Sue is likely to feel... I have had so many happy memories with John in the 10 years we've been together. Am I really saying I wish all that hadn't happened? Repentance is about sin. So she needs to repent of what was sinful about her relationship with John, but she doesn't need to regret the good bits of what they had together in as much as they were appropriate. And it would be reasonable for Sue to be able to say, or say words to the effect of, I don't know quite how I could have had those happy things with John without us being together. I don't regret the happy bits, but I regret, I repent of how we did that. And I found that distinction to be helpful on multiple times with someone. So they don't have to regret the happy times they had together. They have to regret the context in which it happened. Namely being in a second marriage.
1: Yeah. So then on the kind of the last point we talked about manifesting intent or solicitude. So pastorally how do you tell somebody the church doesn't want what you want or the church doesn't acknowledge what you want but please stay in church because um, I could see that harboring much animosity and regret
0: and, you know, yeah, yeah definitely the so there are some things that we say and we might say I know this isn't what you think or isn't what you think yet but just to explain to you why the church is saying this. Other things, somebody is just not ready to hear them yet. So we say what we think they're ready to hear without being dishonest in what we're missing. And so to avoid that thing of not being dishonest, deceitful, but... You don't need to say everything on the first meeting. Okay, page four. Um, Practically speaking. Living as brother and sister, what does this mean? I say, as indicated above, someone divorced and remarried may be admitted to sacramental absolution and thus to Holy Communion if he or she is, to quote the Catechism, committed to living in complete continence, i.e. the couple were resolved to live as, this phrase, brother and sister, not as husband and wife. What does that mean? So a few points here. I say, a couple need to somehow be able to do this, this meaning they are continuing to live in the same house, but as brother and sister, not as husband and wife, without causing public scandal to others. Especially other Catholic parishioners, who might be led to think that remarriage is all right because these respected people are remarried Catholics and appear to be living as husband and wife. They're under the same roof, after all. So, after such absolution, they might receive Holy Communion, but they'd need to do so in such a way that they didn't cause scandal. For example, to do so in a parish where they're not well known. So, to briefly depart from my notes here, you might go to confession, be absolved, be part of this wonderful parish that you've been a part of, but once a month, you go to another parish where you're not known, receive communion, and there's no risk of scandal or anything, Um, but you only do that once a month. Receiving communion in a way that doesn't cause scandal. Or it might be, that you've been in your parish um, so long that it was before, rather your Sue married John long before she moved to her current parish and no one in the current parish knows that she's in a second marriage. Therefore, there isn't a scandal to others. So there's multiple ways that there might not be a scandal. A couple of quotes here, so this isn't, first quote is from the CDF. Michael, could you read that? This means in practice.
2: This means in practice that when, for serious reasons, for example, for the children's upbringing, a man and a woman cannot satisfy the obligation to separate, they take on themselves the duty to live in complete continence, that is, by asking and act proper to marry a In such a case, they may receive Holy Communion as long as they respect the obligation to avoid giving stealing.
0: Then, quote a canon lawyer. Uh, Father John Boyle. Uh, Tyler, could you read this quote?
2: The manner of avoiding scandal is that living in, as brother and sister, they receive holy community communion in a place where the fact of their divorce and civil remarriage is not commonly known. And then Christopher,
0: this is from the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts. Given the fact. But, given the fact that
3: these people are not living.
0: Uh, more you explore. Uh, So they appear to be husband and wife because they are living in the same house. Their living as brother and sister is only a secret thing. So how they avoid scandal is the thing they've got to work out. And there are multiple different ways that can be done. But if they're in a position in their faith journey when they actually themselves, and I've encountered this multiple times, they themselves really believe what the Lord says about marriage, they don't want to lead others into into scandal. I can recall one couple where um, the man in particular in a rather bizarre way would run around kind of telling everyone in the parish, we're living as brother and sister, we're living as brother and sister, we're living. Um, that's kind of one way of doing that. It. Um, so that there wasn't a risk of scandal. Um, What would be the grounds for them to continue to be together in the same house, even though they're not, in the eyes of God, husband and wife? Children. Children are the most obvious. So Bob and Sue had two children, but then also Sue and John had three children, If Sue separates from John, she's gonna deprive the children of John as their father. And they have a right to have John as their father. Um, So she stays with John for the sake of the children, but not living as husband and wife. Um, And I know multiple cases where this is done um, and Children can be ignorant of a lot of things their parents are or are not doing. Um, A different scenario that I've possibly more commonly come to, Sue's only at the phase of looking at this seriously because death is approaching. She's been with John for 20, 30 years. And now death is on the horizon in old age. She realizes there's this thing she's kind of never told the pastor of their new church. Um, And now it's been kind of gnawing at her conscience all these years, now she's wanting to put it right. And she comes to, what do we need to do to put this right? Well, in old age, for her to walk away from John who is frail and dependent on her physically, there might injustice there, it'd just be inappropriate for them to physically separate. Um, so they'd have to resolve to be as brother and sister, but there are, at that end of life, a different set of grounds to stay together. And at the risk of stating which what may or may not be obvious there are some married couples who will continue to engage in marital relations into their 80s and you'll be thinking you know how is your body even able to do that um given how frail you are but um and then there'll be others who somehow at the age of 30 it just kind of ceases to be a thing in their relationship and they might be kind of happy together but the bodily intimacy just kind of stops. So with married couples don't presume one way or the other. And so the thought of a couple living as brother and sister, uh, it is possible. Um, Yeah. Better numbers than what? Sorry, so.
2: Are you saying like 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 couples who live together are way more likely
3: to divorce?
2: Well, are they living
3: as brother and sister? Like we're pretty much assuming like any any married couple who live together aren't living as brother and sister, but in this case, oh yes, they will. They will most certainly. I mean, it's not quite that stark, but is
0: it? I have very occasionally in marriage preparation. Come across a couple who are in the same house as brother and sister. Generally speaking, in our culture, what a couple mean when they say, "Hey, do you want to move in with me?" isn't just "let's share a house." So, it's possible but not frequent. And as pastors, we would say that is an occasion of sin. It's, it's possible, but it's not advised. Yeah. Living as brother and sister. Do you have
3: numbers that Stati- I of, oh n- they seem to be actually living it out or oh it isn't quite clear that they
0: are or not. Huh? Um I have no statistics. I know enough of human nature to know there will be some cases where they resolve to live as brother and sister, but then on certain certain wild nights after a couple glasses um they're not brother and sister but then they repent of it and intend yet again to be brother and sister so that would be a case where the absolution is the general intentions there and there are grounds for them to be staying in the same house And so we restore them in the sacrament as often as they're seeking to be restored. But I also know of many cases, well, what do I mean? I know. um, I'm pretty confident I know of many cases where actually in more mature years, by which I don't mean old years, just the decision is taken with greater maturity. The decision to be his brother and sister can be worked out and held to. Back to my notes, little bottom section there, I say, brother and sister, I say, do not share a bed together. I say, and there would need to be some reason, some grounds for them to continue living with this other person. Otherwise, there is a obligation to separate. Such grounds would frequently be the mutual support for the children's upbringing. I think that would be a case-by-case case kind of criteria um, but I think generally speaking that does sound to be the case yeah um,
2: well, I mean, they, like there's still your parents after you left the house like and there's still I don't know I could, yeah I could see there being reasons not to as well
3: would it still scandalize them to oh why are they why did he leave
0: And that's why I said, probably case by case, but. Because in many families, there are things we discover about our parents or our grandparents, 50 years down the road almost, that we never knew. And that kind of, all the adults knew and the children didn't. Um, That that, that is, There'd be a way of that being the case and they stay together therefore, in order to image to the children um, a married life. Okay, we only have a few minutes. Page five, let's start here at least. Um, So for the next class, the reading is Basically, the, the the rest of the pages of these notes, if you can read, a lot of these are documents rather than just my notes. Um, and then there was maybe one or two other pages in the bundle that I just emailed to you that weren't in these notes. Um, so page five, just starting here and we'll continue here next time. Denying communion to those who refuse to refrain from it. So everything in what we've described so far we're envisaging that you have this conversation with the couple, with Sue and John, or at least with Sue, and Sue agrees she's not gonna be coming up to communion. What happens if Sue comes up to communion anyway? What do you do? I say, so going through my bullet points, I say a priest should seek to check the facts of the situation. So maybe Betty told you that Sue is in a relationship with John and she's remarried. Um, well, you can't rely on Betty as the source. Check the facts. So he should seek to talk to the person or couple concerned. He should explain basically everything I've outlined already. Why they may not receive communion at present. What repentance in their situation involves. What living incontinence would mean for them, i.e. as brother and sister or as separated. The possibility of remaining continent while applying for and awaiting a request for a decree of nullity of the previous marriage. So, Sue has come back to church. She's not receiving communion or going to confession. She's applying for a declaration of nullity. While she's waiting, she continues to be in this status. Or, while she's waiting, they agree to live as brother and sister until the situation is resolved. But they don't know how it's gonna be resolved. Will the church examine their wedding and marriage and say it was null to begin with? Or will the church examine it and say, no, it was a real marriage and therefore you're not free to be husband and wife with, with John. So she, how she lives this, either she doesn't receive communion during that stage, or their brother and sister during that stage, while awaiting the verdict of the tribunal. Okay, we'll come back to that next time. So there's a lot we're looking at here. It's good that we've had questions and discussion, but there's a lot for us to be covering.